Let me tell you what we're doing, particularly if you're here as a guest or a visitor and you're thinking, what have I come to? We are, leading up to Easter, looking at a number of passages from before Jesus, and we're picking this theme of sacrifice or substitution, and we are threading it through the Bible so that when we get to Easter, we understand Jesus and appreciate Jesus even better, all the more. And so our first week, we were thinking about a sacrifice of one for one. That was Genesis 22. Um, Last week was Exodus 12. Do you remember the Passover? One for a family. This week, it is one for the nation. And next week, it'll be one for the nations, plural. Um, So let me pray for us, pray that God would help us. I'm aware that, as Matt said, this feels a long way from us, 2023 in Oxford. Um, So let's pray that God would help us not just to understand it and kind of work out some of what's going on, but actually why it matters and what it means for us. So let me pray and we'll ask for God's help. Lord, we thank you that you do love to speak. Thank you that you don't hide yourself away or conceal yourself in some way, but by your son and in your word about him, we have your living words of eternal life. And so, Lord, we don't just want to understand these verses this morning in one sense. We don't just want a better understanding of the passage, but actually we want to hear what it means for us. And so would you soften our hearts? Would you open our blind eyes that we might see you? In Jesus' name, amen. One of the the big problems, really, at the heart of the Bible is, is this paradox of how, if our God is so good and so pure and so just and so perfect... How he can be in relationship with people like us who are not. How is that going to work? And it's a, it's a theme and it's an idea. We see it again and again and again. Going through the Bible, it sits at the very heart of it in many, in many ways. On the one side, he's a God of love. At the very core of who he is. He is a God of the Trinity, eternity, mutual love. You can't go back to the start of that. It has always been Mutual love and cooperation. And then out of that love, he creates humanity. He creates a world whom he also shows love to. And yet, he walks with us. He loves us. He loves to love us. But we are so broken and so selfish and so proud. And maybe there'll be things this last week and we look back and we are... We find it awkward. We know what we said about that colleague or what we thought about that person or how we acted in our temper. And and those words that just came out, if we could just pull them back in again, but it's too late. And they've gone. He knows our darkness and our anger and our bitterness. And so he is this God of love and yet he's a God who is just. And it's a question that sits at the heart of the scriptures. And it's one really that sits at the heart of this passage for this morning, it's an answer we'll see. It begins in the Old Testament. We're here stuck in Leviticus 16. And then we won't really get an answer until we jump into Hebrews in a bit, in the New Testament, after Jesus. So we'll spend lots of time in Leviticus 16. And then we will get to Hebrews in a bit, and you'll see, hopefully, why it really matters. We're in Leviticus 16, and we're looking at the Day of Atonement, which might be a a word or a phrase that you're familiar with. Leviticus essentially is a book of sacrifices. And the idea about sacrifices is sacrifices restore relationships. 
Sacrifices restore relationships where vertical relationships with God are ruined, where horizontal relationships between us are ruined. So sacrifices restore relationships. And where sin, our wrongdoing, before a holy God ought to lead to death. So this blood in a sacrifice, in some sense, restores the relationship that's been broken. Sacrifices restore relationship. And that's at the heart of chapter 16. So our first point, hopefully on the screens. Two goats, once a year, the ritual and the reason. There he is. It's a bit of an aside, but if you just look down at Leviticus, and if you've got your Burgundy Bible, it's page 118. Um, If the writer were doing it chronologically, chapter 16 should really be at chapter 11. That is, chapter 16 is in the wrong place. So as Andy read, maybe you spotted the first um, couple of verses in 16. We get this story of Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, who, who die because they incorrectly approach God. They don't follow it to the letter. And then chapter 16 picks that up. So verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. Just like last time, it's not a popular truth for our times, but we don't get to worship God as we like. There is no room for creativity and imagination and just doing things our way and as we feel like it. No, God sets the agenda. He clarifies who he is We don't get to make that up. And he clarifies how we worship him. We don't get to make that up either. And anything else is false worship, and Nadab and Abihu found that to their cost. So chapter 10, and then where's chapter 11? No, it's chapter 6. Hang on, why has he done that? Why have we got 11 to 15 there? Well, firstly, in 11 to 15, there is a whole lot of content about sin and uncleanness, pollutants that make it impossible for for God's people to enter into a relationship with a holy God. He is, 11 to 15, sticking it in bold. He is double underlining it. He is getting the highlighter out and reminding us of our uncleanness, reminding us quite how much of what, how we need this sacrifice in 16. But secondly as well, chapter 16 is the exact middle of the book. Some of you, I've lost you now for the rest of the sermon because you're trying to work out exactly how it fits. But it's the exact middle, the page in the middle, if you like, the passage in the middle. And in Hebrew writing, that is the one for us to concentrate on. That is the bold double underline highlight. It's physically at the heart of the book. But in terms of theme as well, it is the heart of the book. And if you want the heart of the chapter, I think somewhere like verse 30 or verse 34 will give it to us. And verse 30 of chapter 16, on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you'll be clean from all your sins. Or or verse 34, this is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. So the chapter is all about removing dirt, cleansing from sins. That's what he's writing about. And yet before we get there, there are a number of stages that need to happen. There are three basic sacrifices going on in chapter 16. Um, The first one is for the priest. Here, this is Aaron. He is not perfect. He is unclean. And if you had read 11 to 15, you would know that. And so that needs to be sorted first. So have a look down at chapter 16, verse 3 with me. This is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area. With a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. 
He's to tie the linen sash around him, put on the linen turban. They're sacred garments. He must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He's to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. So he's to wash himself, verse 4, and then he doesn't get a choice in what he wears. There's no sort of standing in front of the wardrobe thinking, what do I wear this morning? He is told he is to wear linen undergarments and tunic with a linen sash. And if you know Leviticus, you know that is quite a change of wardrobe for what he would normally wear. Normally he's in brightly coloured material. Inscript designs, gold, jewellery, show something of his status, show something of the splendour of the God whom he worships. But isn't it striking now? He looks, it's very simple. It's very plain, quite boring. He looks like a servant, humbly dressed, because he's going into the most holy place, standing before the holy God. And so he's stripped of all honour in one sense. So sacrifices for himself, for his own sin. Verse 11, he's going to bring a bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household, and he's to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He's to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. A sinful and a broken human priest seeking to fulfill his duties in the climax of the religious calendar. And so every base is covered by the Lord. His clothing, but sacrifices too. And not just for him, but for his family. So number one, sacrifice for the priest. Number two, for the place. The tent is to be cleansed as well. And remember, what you have in Leviticus, you have a traveling community, a nomadic people on their way to the promised land, the land that God has promised them. He has rescued them from Egypt, that was last week. And yet they're not in the land that God has promised to Abraham and Sarah. And so they move and then they settle, and then they move and then they settle, and they move and they settle as God tells them. And when God says, they take it all down and pack it up for the next place and they do it again. And again, and, and the geography of the camp matters because right in the middle is the Holy of Holies, the, the temple, the, sorry, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, that's at the very center. God is to be at the heart of their community, both in terms of geography, but also in terms of what they stand for, because they should worship him. And yet geography, not just for the camp, but geography for the tabernacle as well. There are two rooms inside. There's the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, a perfect cube. It's pure, it's perfect. You've got an Ark of the Covenant there, and inside that you've got two tablets and Ten Commandments on them. It is accessible, but just once a year, and just by one man. Yet before you get there, second room, you've got the holy place, the altar of incense, the candlesticks, and other stuff is stored there, various things they need for the sacrifices. And so you see, as well as making sacrifices to purify himself as the priest, he makes sacrifices for the place, the location, the articles. So follow it down from verse 15. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people to take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he makes atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and the rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. 
is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. So because they are an unholy people, this tent is, if you like, infected by them. So it's for the priest, it's for the place, but then it's for the people, for the Israelites. And that comes in the form of two goats and a ram. And this is, if you like, where it's all been heading. So thirdly, for the people, we've got a priest, we've got a place, and now we have the people. And we're going to focus in on the two goats this morning. Um, Verse 5, you get the first one. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And then verse 8, he is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. So two goats, similar jobs, but different meaning, different representations, if you like. Um, Let's go through them. Goat number one, we're going to call him Jeffrey. And he is going to be a sin offering. And if you know Leviticus, you'll know that sin offerings come up in chapter four. They are for the unintentional sins of the people. And what happens in chapter 4 is that the elders of the community lay their hands on the head of the animal and they slaughter the animal. And where sin before a holy God, a good God, deserves death, so the animal dies in the place of the people. The blood of the creature is shed instead of the blood of the sinner. That's, that's Jeffrey. And sadly, that's what happens to him. The second goat, we're going to go Gerald's is a bit different. Gerald for now is alive. He is to be the scapegoat. In fact, this is where the word comes from. In 1530, William Tyndale, translating the Bible, couldn't come up with a word quite right, and so he made scapegoat. Now we use that every day. But the scapegoat is the one who takes the blame, and so pick it up at verse 20. See what happens to him. So Jeffrey's sadly gone. Gerald is on his way out of the camp. When Aaron had finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it into the desert." So the, the sin, the guilt of the, of the people, transferred onto the goat and removed, taken away. It's gone and released into the unclean deserts. No longer among them, the removal of sin from their midst, it's gone. Priest, place, people. I guess our question is Why? Why are they to do this? And to answer that word, to answer that, there is one word we need to get to grips with. The clue is in the title, and the word is atonement. It comes up in one form or another 20 times in 34 verses. What is atonement? And I guess we find ourselves at the initial question again. How can a perfectly pure and good and holy God be in relationship with people like us. Sinful humanity with corrupt hearts who are always veering towards self, who are always wishing we could pull our words back into our mouths again. 
one helpful way of thinking about it, I think, is, is if God has an allergy to sin. Maybe that helps you get your mind around it a bit if you're new to these things. It's, it's like someone who just starts uncontrollable sneezing because flowers come into the room. Or somebody who is intolerant to peanuts. We get that idea, don't we? We get that idea in our current culture. They just can't be in the same place as it. It just doesn't work. It can't work. God is unable to coexist with those things. They can't just, just get over it, will you? Stop being so... Stop being so sensitive about it. Goodness me, it's just a peanut. You'll be... F- oh. Now, it's fundamentally who they are. They cannot coexist with those things. Well, so our God, who is so good, so good, cannot coexist with, that, with those things, with sin. Because we know what we're like. And so the answer to the question is atonement. That word was coined by John Wycliffe. He was the old master of Balliol College in Oxford. And he was, again, translating the Bible and didn't find anything that quite worked. And so made a word. And ment, M-E-N-T, simply means to make. So a settlement is literally to make settle. So atonement is literally to make at one. That's what atonement means, to make Act one. Atonement is bringing two parties back together again. Two hostile parties being reconciled and reunited. And what causes hostility between man and God? Well, it's sin. And so what needs to be dealt with for reconciliation to occur? Well, it's sin. So what is atonement about? It is dealing with our sin. That's simply it. And it's striking in the chapter. It's very visual, isn't it? This matters when we think about sin, according to the Bible. For, for goat number one, poor old Jeffrey, he dies because God's right anger against the sin of the people goes on him. And there's an inevitability, there's a punishment, there's a death. Jeffrey's blood is spilt. But Gerald, do you remember, hands on his head, confesses the rebellion and the sin of the people. And where does Gerald go? He He runs away. The sin is transferred and taken away. And so atonement happens. So reconciliation can happen again. At one meant can happen again. The second goat portrays in one sense what the first goat accomplished. The removal of sin. And so that is the day of atonement. The heart of Leviticus at the heart of the Jewish calendar still is today. Atonement from God so that a loving, just God can be satisfied year after year after year after year again and again and again and again and again. The treadmill of religion running and running, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, gallons and gallons and gallons of blood spilt constant painful reminder of of sins piling up again and needing to be removed and piling up again and needing to be removed and piling up again and needing to be removed again and again and again and again and maybe you think hang on I've got an idea do you know what we need we need what about if we had some kind of sacrifice that would actually work forever 
What about if we have a sacrifice that means we don't need to keep coming back every year and doing it again and again and again, but it works once and for all? And even how about better than that? What about a sacrifice that works once and for all, but maybe even in some sense that sacrifice will do something to change our hearts that we might stop sinning even? And one that doesn't just deal with sins in the past of the last year, but actually sins that cover the future as well, because I know what I'm going to be like tomorrow. And so come with me now to Hebrews chapter 10, and you'll see our second point, one man forever, the fulfillment and the finale. Here is the answer that we're looking for. Verse 1 of chapter 10. It's 1208 if you have one of the church Bibles. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities in themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Skip down a bit to verse 11 as well. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifice, which can never Take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Back in Leviticus, access was so limited. It was one man with limited access to God once a year. But do you see the point in Hebrews? Because Jesus entered once and for all, because he was the true high priest, the true sacrifice, because he made atonement for us, everyone who trusts in Jesus has unconditional access everywhere all the time. It's everyone. It's not just the high priest. It's not just the Jewish people. But it's Gentiles too. All nations able to come and worship God. It's God's promise to Abraham. In action. So it's everyone, it's everywhere as well. You don't need a building, you don't need a tabernacle or a tent of meeting or a temple or even a church building, useful though they are. No, it's everywhere. Because it's because of Christ. And it's all the time, it's not just one day a year. He'll go on and say to everyone, draw near with faith. The way is open because of Christ's death. You don't have to wait for a special day. You can do it all the time. And actually, it turns out the shocker from these verses is the animal sacrifices that we've just read of in Leviticus 16 weren't really able to deal with sin. Isn't that shocking? Verse 4, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Imagine it's a family squabble at the steel household. Imagine, 
hypothetically, that child X has been naughty or rude or grumpy or unkind. And they squabble back and forth and there's... And you know, kids, that bad behavior has consequences, so you are both grounded. This week, that's it. You're grounded. And we're taking screens away. And child Y says, that's not fair. That's not fair. They started anyway. Can't someone else be punished for us? With a glint in their eye. I'm sure we sing about that at church, Dad. (laughs) How about, I know, how about if you don't ground us, but you ground Alvin the guinea pig? Ground him instead. Could he not take the punishment for us? Could he not be our substitute, Dad? I'm sure we sing about that. And yet the writer to Hebrews says, no, you need a person to take away the sin of a person. And a goat or a bull, and definitely not a guinea pig, will do as a substitute. The blood sacrifices in Leviticus pointed us ahead to what Jesus would do. Their deaths foreshadowing his death. They gave us the pattern. They gave us the categories. And yet, actually, the animal deaths just end up being a big reminder to the people of their sin. Again and again and again, year after year after year. And the cleansing and the atonement outlined in Leviticus 16 only really worked because of what Jesus would do centuries later. It was as if they were getting it on credit then. And so as Christ dies and the gospel writers say that the temple curtain is torn in two and what separates them is now opened up, so access is possible. And so we can draw near with faith. Atonement is made forever. Now, we don't deny our ongoing sin, and you will know this last week. But we do deny the distance. We're still in in these bodies, and we still muck up, and we still hurt the people we love, and we still get it wrong, and our hearts are still dirty in one sense. And yet how God sees us because of Christ is not necessarily how we see ourselves. And how God thinks of us because of Christ is not necessarily how we think of ourselves. Because he sees us as those who enjoy atonement at one moment. Because of Christ's death in our place. Because of Christ, our great high priest, and indeed our sacrifice. Fulfilling what the day of atonement pointed towards. Listen to how the Bible finishes. The very end of the story, Revelation 21. John writes, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things have passed away. You see, it's so visual. God again among his people, a new heavens and a new earth, the barrier of sin dealt with forever, and so perfect at one the dwelling of God with men again. Don't you long for that day? Just two things to f- reflect on as we finish. It's the interplay again of God's love and his justice. 
One of the things that strikes me from this is, is how much it costs to deal with sin in Leviticus. And we easily lose something of that in our sanitized culture in the West. But it was just graphic, wasn't it? And vivid, brutal. Just imagine the time, the animals, the sacrifice, the blood again and again, year after year after year. It was, it was messy what they had to go through to make atonement for their sin. And it was kind of there in their faces in a way that it's not really for us. It took up time in their diary and in their planning and in their budget. They had to pay for it. And the continuous necessary treadmill of religion again and again and again. And it's easy for, for Christians now to be pretty blasé about it. We, we take it for granted. But then secondly, with justice comes God's love. He is a God of love. He loves his people. And so he pays that cost for us. Isn't that extraordinary? Because at the cross, because of his love for us, he deals with his right anger against our sin. His son dies in the place of his people. His son makes atonement at extraordinary cost. So he, he is just, he, he hates sin, but he, is, he loves people. And so at the cross we see both combining. Maybe you know something of the reality of that sin in your own life. Maybe you know something of the words that come out that you just wish you could pull them back in or, or what goes on in your heart or your actions. Or maybe you've got stuff in your past that you are so ashamed of. The skeletons in your closet that... If someone found out about that, I'm just not sure I could live. Well, these verses say, come to Jesus for atonement. Come to him. Come and receive from him. Come and find grace in him. Come and be forgiven. Let's pray. Lord, in one sense, these verses in Leviticus seem such a long way from us. And yet we thank you for the way in which they point us to Christ. We thank you that you love people. And so you make it possible for broken, bruised, sinful people like us to be in relationship with you. We thank you for Christ. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that in him we find atonement. So thank you that in him we can be in relationship with you. In his name we pray. Amen.